Fairy Girl. Hi, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? That's because it's our show. And And it's it's not not yours. If it's your first time listening to the show, stop. Stop. Go Go back back to the beginning. beginning. Episode one, Grumblethorpe's in my mouth a little bit. We're not joking. Come along for the journey, okay? You need to start at the beginning. You don't just show up in the middle, okay? Like, we're going to talk about that a little later. There's a linear through line through all 186 episodes. We have one long storyline that's been going on, but you wouldn't understand it if you didn't start from the beginning. Right, Stephanie? And the storyline is our lives, just like any other show that you really like watching. But also, we're on the hunt for a crystal, and uh, every episode we get a little step closer, but you don't learn about that till the end, so you have to start from the beginning. So you'll hear about why... (laughs) You can Where's just, the crystal? What cave did we you find can it in? Jump around, jump around, jump up, jump up, and get down. Once you're already familiar with the show, you can go to whatever episode you want, and you can listen wherever you want, and you can be like, "I like that episode. I want to go back to it." That's fine. But to start, you need to go in order so that you can understand how the storyline goes before you just start skipping around. But we'll get into that. So, not you today, not now. If you've never listened to the show before, you're going to stop. You're going to go back. You're going to listen to the beginning. Do it. But welcome back if you've been here before or if you've come back now after that journey of starting at the beginning. Do you think our intro's gotten a little too long? Do you? Yeah, maybe you today. You look like you do. You maybe look today like you I feel like we that. stretched it out a little bit. Well, I maybe, was just, uh, so maybe I, I have to stress too, I just made extra emphasis because it's going to come up in what I'm talking about today. Oh! <laughs> starting at the Ooh. beginning. Understanding the context of going through the journey before you go back and pick and choose where you want to be. And I will explain how that's relevant once we get to that part of my story. But that's why I really stressed on that today because it's relevant to what I'm talking about today. There's the segue. Yeah. All right. Okay. How have you been, Sarah? Uh, good. You know, just trying to hermit it up, save some money. Yeah. I feel like a few episodes we talked about how we're entering the uh, trying to get our shit together phase. So we're still currently in production on Woman Who Gets Her Shit Together featuring Sarah Heddens, written by Sarah Heddens. Sarah Heddens production. By Sarah Heddens, starring Sarah Heddens, produced by Sarah Heddens. Fight direction and choreography, Sarah Heddens. All stunts performed by Sarah Heddens. Real crying by Sarah Heddens. And she put her own money in the show. I was really hoping you would throw one thing in that was like (laughs) one thing that was another person. Like Stage Managed by Mary Angela. <laughs> Prop guy, Sarah Heddens. <laughs> Gaffer, Sarah Heddens. Stage Direction, Sarah Heddens. Written by. <laughs> but there's one person who has a job. <laughs> that isn't you. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. <laughs> wow, for the stage? It's crazy, but I cried enough. And... Was, do you know what I really wanted you to say? Not that Steven Spielberg. <laughs> No, a different Steven Spielberg. A different one. He, he spells it differently. <laughs> the I before is the E. So it's before the E. Gotcha. That's no, actually, Steven, Steen, uh, Steven Steenberg, actually. 
I'm sorry. What did I say? <laughs> what, did, what did I say? Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> that's who was directing it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, check back in later to see if a woman gets her shit together, ever hits the stage. Speaking of women not getting their shit together, I was eliminated from Snatch Girl. <laughs> Directed by Steven Spinberg. Directed by uh, Stephen Florence Nightingale. <laughs> no, I, uh, so I was eliminated in the Dueling Divas Grand Prix, which was a lip sync tournament. And I knew if I didn't make it through the first round that I was going to go home because it yeah. was all going to be Downhill. down from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, if I had made it through the first round, I would at least be safe. But it, uh, it is what it is. I was a very strong contender. This is, and I realized this to myself, this is no tea, no shade. There are still people in the competition that have not won any challenges. And you won two. And I won two challenges. Uh, and the only other people who've won two challenges are the two other people who I, you know, they I consider the, the front runners. So I was a front runner until I was eliminated. <laughs> but they snatched you out of the game. They Ella. snatched me out. What what can I say? I'm not you were just- everyone was really great. This is not to be like, it's because I sucked that I went home. Like, everyone was really, really good. Yeah. And I told myself very early in this competition that, like, if and when I got eliminated, it would not mean that I was not a great performer or that I wasn't going to get booked or that people didn't love me. It would yeah. just mean that subjectively, one week, the judges liked what the other people did more than what I did. That's all it is. That's all it is. And at the time of my elimination, um, so with speaking this, at this time that you're hearing this episode, there's only one night left, which is the finale, which I will still be performing in. But where we are in time, which, you know, is a construct, where we are, you and I, in time at this point, uh, there are two episodes left, two week, two shows left, and I will be in both of them yeah. um, because this week is the reunion mm-hmm. anyway. So I'll be back for the reunion. And then next week is the finale, and I will still be performing in the finale. I'm just not competing anymore. And I got to say, so especially... She's still working. Less pressure. That's exactly what I was going to say. Significantly less pressure. I'm still in the group chat with all the girls. I'm not in the official one anymore. And I got to tell you, when that happened, I was like, it's so cold out here. Oh. <laughs> like, I felt like my body had been kicked. Like, I just been kicked out in the cold. Um, but no, the kiki is still going. And with all the girls talking about how... I say girls girls, all of the queer people, all of the people that are competing, all of the people in the competition are all talking about like the stress of like they have to get this picture in this week. They're still putting these numbers together. Somebody's trying to raise a lot of money for their production number that they're doing at the show, at the finale. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there like, wow, I am so glad I'm not doing any of that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a lot. I'll still be in the last two shows. I'm still going to get paid for performing, which is fantastic. Without the stress of the competition or, like, mm-hmm. the rules that I have to do this specific song. So it's really cool. You should still come see me is what I'm getting at. You should still come support me at the finale, even though I'm, you know, just going to be – it's going to be really cool. I'm going to wear this great dress. Yeah, If it she comes is. in time. Sarah Fingers knows what crossed. it is. Fingers crossed. But, yeah, Snatcherella, come support your girl, Polly Wanda Cracker. And Snatcherella is going to be ending, and Polly is going to have more gigs. I worked my – my first gig post snatch yeah. this week, which was at Madhouse with Sardonyx. And I was a big fan of Sardonyx before starting this season. And then Sardonyx asked me to be in their show. So it's been fucking See? cool. And then I met somebody at that venue who was like, we would have you back anytime. Hit me up on Instagram. We would love to book you. Like, 
Your girl is still hashtag booked and blessed. And it's really awesome. Feeling really good about myself as an artist. And uh, yeah, even though I was eliminated, I I didn't lose is what I'm saying. No, definitely not. It's still been a big win. Because you got more work. Yeah, it's been awesome. So that being said, that's what's going on with me right now. Um, Working Snatcherella through the end of the year. And then I'm not booking anything until January. Which is just a few weeks away. It's true. <laughs> the last Snatcherella is on the 15th. And I'm not, uh, I had somebody ask me about doing a Christmas show. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything after the 15th. No, take <laughs> Please. a break. Please. Um, and then, yeah, I'll start doing stuff again in, in late January. And I'll, you know, have updates on that. Nice. Yay. So that's what's up in our lives, y'all. Yeah. And doing this. And uh, we are not too far away from our 200th episode. So. So, you know, we're planning some Get things. ready. If you started from the beginning like you're supposed to have, you will have followed us through that journey of coronavirus after episode one of not being able to remember the word quarantine. No. Like, you really need to you, go back. You really got to go back. You had to be there. You really did. You so. Really did. It was a different time back then. You never know. Anyways. Well, that being Here's said. <laughs> hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey. What? I don't know. I don't hey, know. Stephanie. Hey. Hey, uh, Leslie. Leslie? Y'all, Y'all ready, ready to, to talk, talk about, about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? One, why are you being weird? Two, I don't know. I don't think I who's was. Going first? <laughs> wow. The second question was the one that was really, you're fine. You're, uh, not, you're just being, I don't, just being Sarah. Just being an asshole. No. All right. Don't make it weird. Do you just, oh, you're going first. Go. What are you talking about? Okay. So the journey, right? And we were talking about before you want to start at the beginning. You want to move along. What's this journey that I'm talking about? Well, right now I'm on a journey. That's one thing. <laughs> Why are you being weird? <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> like Lady Gaga said, baby, I was born this way. Girl, I was born this way. So when we started this podcast, uh, you know, nigh on almost 200 Nine years ago. ago. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about what we wanted to do with this show, right? We talked about lots of different things that we wanted to talk about. And we do tend to lean towards ghost stories and true crime and cults, but... I also remember expressing early on an interest in kind of bringing more witchy stuff into the show. Okay. And I know that I had uh, mentioned that pretty early on, and I did a tarot reading for you on the show. You did. I um, did your uh, your natal chart. We talked about that. That wasn't a natal chart. That was Stephanie airing her grievances. <laughs> My grievances. <laughs> about me. I'm just kidding. I, that was me airing was your grievances, some of which me. I didn't even know about. <laughs> Uh, pretty. Yes. <laughs> uh, so one of the things recently is that I have been wanting to recommit myself to some of the the witchy interests that I have in my life and to okay. make space for them and to make time for them. And one of those things that I've been reinvesting myself in and my time is the tarot deck and learning to read tarot cards. Now, I've been reading tarot cards for about eight years. I got my first deck actually from Mary Angela. It was a Christmas present. Uh, it was <laughs> along with the Tarot for Dummies book. Yeah. And it was what's considered, I mean, it's the most popular and the most sold 
version of the tarot deck in the world, what's considered the the Rider Waite deck, Mm -hmm. and we'll get into that as well. But I'm back to, like, reading about the tarot, and when I did Terror Behind the Walls, currently called Halloween Nights at Eastern State Penitentiary. Not terror. I also spent time working in what they call the witch's cell, or sometimes we call it fortune teller, where you read tarot cards. I read tarot cards for you and Mary Angela mm-hmm. in there. Uh, what I did for, for everyone was really a simple three-card spread where I would be like, okay, here's the past, here's the present, here's the future. And sometimes people would ask me, like, is this real? Do you really do this? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm in character. Like, what the fuck am I going to say to you? But Ultimately, really, like, yes, I am giving a real tarot card reading. I'm mm-hmm. in a character right now. I'm yeah. giving it to you but it as make a character. Action. But the reading I'm giving you is still a real reading. Yeah. And what is a real reading? Well, that also is your interpretation of what is real with tarot card. What does this mean to you? And like, and I would, I would tell people that tarot card is all about a perspective, right? Gaining perspective on something that you're working on or something you've been trying to process. And tarot cards just kind of give you an idea of how to put those in a different perspective. What if I think about this problem from this area? What if I approach it this way or try and handle it this way? And uh, so I, in my renewal of my interest in tarot and going back to not just reading tarot cards, but reading about tarot cards, I wanted to talk a little bit today about the history of tarot cards. Ooh, okay. Okay? Okay. I'm also, um, so for a long time, uh, I had always heard that you're not supposed to buy your own tarot cards. Isn't that a myth? Isn't everything a myth? Okay. (laughs) Everything is as serious as you make it. Um, I had always heard that. That is not just something that, it's a very popular thing that people say about tarot cards. Okay. Uh, recently I heard you're not supposed to buy your first deck that you can buy your own after that, but some, but somebody is supposed to gift you your first deck. Uh, but I've been listening a lot to a podcast called Your Magic with mm-hmm. Michelle T. And Michelle is an excellent witch who uh, her show, she like has different like artists or whoever on. And the first half of the show is just kind of her interviewing them and asking them like, do they have a spiritual practice, whatever. And then the second half is her doing a tarot card reading for them. And then she also, every other episode is called Ask the Tarot, where it's just her like on a Zoom call <laughs> doing like tarot readings for different people on oh, the Zoom funny. call. <laughs> I know. It's really adorable. Um, but she's uh, she's really cool and has given me a lot of like interesting and different perspectives on the tarot card. Uh, she usually uses the Toth deck, which was originally created with Aleister Crowley, who we'll get into Aleister Crowley later, but he's a, a guy who's very famous for like being into the occult and creating a lot of occult resources because he was very privileged and had a lot of money. He came from a lot of money. <laughs> he also had a lot of very problematic, like misogynistic, racist views and ultimately poured all of his money into the occult and died medalist. <laughs> but he's like a big to-do that people talk about when they yeah. talk about the occult. And he had his own tarot deck. And she uses that deck, but she also acknowledges like that he is problematic. Not great. And when it comes to tarot cards, the deck that most people are familiar with is the one that I mentioned earlier, the Rider Waite deck. That was my very first deck. Uh, and if you Google tarot, it's usually what comes up. If you're looking at Wikipedia, like they've... Got all the Rider White cards on Wikipedia. <laughs> They're all there. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of tarot cards and then specifically the history of the Rider White deck. Okay. 
So tarot cards have been around in some form or another for many, many, many centuries. And ultimately, they actually came from playing cards, which if you ever look through a deck of tarot cards, if you've never looked through them before, there's the major arcana and then there's what are called the pip cards. And the pip cards are essentially the same thing as a deck of playing cards, where there's a there's an ace, two, three, four, up through a 10. They have one extra card, which is the page. They have the page, the knight, the queen, and the king, where we would have the jack, the queen, and the king. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. one extra face card in there. But otherwise, it's essentially the same thing, the pip cards. And then the major arcana are the ones that are like the fool, the magician, the world, the high priestess, judgment, all of those. So there's 22 major arcana cards, and there are 56 pip cards, totaling to 78 tarot cards. Okay. Now, if you're wondering which came first, like using them for divination or using them for playing, the answer is playing. The playing card deck was first. Uh, And playing cards have been around for, like, dozens and dozens of centuries. They've been around for a really, really long time. Tarot cards didn't really start to show up until, well, they were the same thing. There was two different games because, like I said, the Major Arcana is 22. And then we have the pip cards. Well, the pip cards are the numbered cards. And then we have the... Face Face cards. cards. All of those are the minor arcana. So the playing cards that we know today, like the minor arcana developed from those, and the major arcana was a different deck. And over time, the two of them started to be seen together as one complete deck. Because people kept going to parties and bringing their deck and then accidentally picking up cards from the other deck and then taking that home. And, and then sometimes home and they like, got an oh, expansion pack and then they, and they like the played and they had to Ex- trade cards. Exactly. They and they traded them around and they were like, maybe we should make this its own thing. <laughs> so playing cards have been around for a very long time, right? Now, like I said, they weren't using them for divination until about the 1700s. And that started after there was a priest who um, (laughs) had a really good lucky streak in gambling with the cards. No, he was like, those cards are from the devil because people use them for divination. What is it, Harry Potter? Right. And at the time, they're really before that time. That was in 1781. His name is... uh, Antoine Caud de Gabelin, he was a French Freemason and a Protestant pastor. Of course. He published a book, Le Monde Primitif, which is the primitive world, tracing the mysticisms of the ancient world and their surviving traces in the modern world, modern being the 1700s at that time. Among them, he included the famous French playing card deck, the Tarot de Marseille, which it later, you know, became here, which he connected to the Egyptian deities of Isis and Toth which remember I mentioned the The Alistair Crowley talk deck, which didn't exist at this time. Through his musings on the subjects, um, they've all, like, he was talking about how people use them to, like, worship the devil or, you know, try and tell the future. But before he wrote that, there's no written evidence that that's ever a thing that people use tarot cards for. He's someone who nowadays would have been, like, he would have hated Dungeons & Dragons And he would say, these kids are shooting each other because of violent video games. Now, that's not to say it didn't necessarily exist because tarot could have been passed down from people who didn't have a written language. Like, it could be an oral tradition, especially because the tarot cards are pictures, right? Mm -hmm. And so you use the pictures to tell a story or to play a game or what have you. Um, 
But there's no written account before that time, which means it wasn't something that was popular. It wasn't the thing that a lot of people were doing. But the popularity of it rose. Of course. (laughs) After he was like, the devil is in the tarot cards. Don't get them. Um, But as we know, moving into like the Victorian era, um, people became more obsessed with like death and spirituality and speaking to the beyond and mysticism. Those things actually started to grow in popularity. And so naturally, so did the popularity of the tarot deck. Of course. <laughs> Naturally. So then people were like, ah, oh, that sounds really cool. Like a divination card. What how, What does that mean? Like, how do I tell the future And with it? story that you haven't been told, that Protestant pastor who spoke out against it owned stock in the tarot card companies. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> um, not at that time. But even, so... Um, it was open, like mysticism and spirituality was something that everybody was looking into. Even Christians mm-hmm. were like really into that at the time. And a lot of Christians began reading the Kabbalah. Um, this is the same time uh, when I've talked about this before. Ghost photography like mm-hmm. <laughs> got led into from that point. So people were really, really getting to be obsessed with just mysticism, the occult, like all sorts of weird shit like that. They so, loved Ghost Adventures. They would have been so into fucking Ghost Adventures. <laughs> um, so as those started to rise, there was uh, there was the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a group that was really into the occult. Uh, and actually, their cross is on the back of Aleister Crowley's Toth deck. That's what's okay. on the, the back of all of the cards. It was devo- it was devoted to studying the occult, and it was one of the first occult organizations that uh, was open to women. Oh well, all right. That's <laughs> so that's good. pretty cool uh, because at the time, down with the occult so far. <laughs> uh, if you listen from the beginning, you fucking get it. So at the time, it was a big boys club to be a paranormal researcher and be interested in the occult and all of that. Always. And uh, the Golden Dawn was actually, like I said, it was the first organization to be open to women as well as men. So that was really cool. They founded its first their first temple in London in 1888 called the Isis Urania Temple. And uh, it was founded by, you guessed it, Freemasons. <laughs> Hey. Um, But they were also part of this like weird esoteric Christian order. And there were early members were um, William Butler Yeats, Aleister Crowley, who I mentioned before, and a guy named Arthur Edward Waite, as in the Rider Waite deck. Don't tell me. So both of these dudes were in this group. (laughs) Did they have a feud? Tell me they had a feud. I don't know. Ish. Let's get, let me, let's get through the story. Okay. But we did start the story by saying there is the Rider Waite deck and there's the Toth deck. And both of these men were, uh, were in this group. But the Rider Waite deck is the one that has like stood Gained the popularity. test of time. It's the one that's been the most sold across the, the world at this point in our arbitrary timeline of life, you and I. Of course. Uh, so Aleister Crowley was infamous during his time because he did drugs. He, you know. See, the occult bad boy. He was the occult bad boy. And his outspoken minority opinion for the time that homosexual desires should not be repressed or ignored. But like I said, yeah, he was like, it's not bad to be gay, but don't be Just don't brown be- or a woman. <laughs> but you could be gay. Right. But you could be gay. Right. So, 
So one of the reformed orders included who would become the founding team of the modern English language tarot, because all of the things that had come from, there was a French deck, there was an Italian deck, uh, the Tarocci the is, the, is the Italian game. But again, they were, the, they were playing card games. Mm-hmm. And so all of the forms of the tarot card at that time were some Italian version or a French version or a German version. There wasn't like, like an official English language version of the tarot. Yeah. And so he decided to work with an artist, he being uh, Arthur Edward Waite. He decided to work with an artist whose last name is not Ryder. (laughs) And we'll get into that. Her name is Pamela Coleman Smith. That's right. Her name. She's a woman. (laughs) I thought she wasn't allowed in here. No, she was. Remember? I know. They were one of the first groups that let the women in. So he was an American, um, uh, Wait was. He was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1857 to an American father and a British mother. And his father died when he was very little. His mother was a widow. Um, but, you know. <laughs> like, Didn't stop her. Well, what? no, I was going to say, so with no man around in the house, he got interested in the occult. Because <laughs> that's what happened. That's what happened to me. <laughs> so. That's it. That's the formula. Uh, no, but his uh, he had a sister who died when he was like a teenager, and that started his interest in the occult. And he like, was like, what's up with death? Right. So he became fascinated by death, what happens, uh, and he joined the Order of the Golden Dawn, later becoming a Freemason. Uh, and as far as occult topics were concerned, Waite's interests were... <laughs> were varied and far-reaching. He was into, like, whatever he could get his shit, his, like, fucking hands on. Kabbalah, mysticism, spiritualism, like, academic circles, like, ceremonial magic, the Holy Grail, like, any of the, like, kind of magic-y things that people were talking about. He was like, yeah, bitch, like, send that my way. So he has a down. lot of time on his hands. Um, what is time? <laughs> no! I don't know. What year is it? How long have we been in this room? <laughs> For a split second, I got worried. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. What, what time is it? So he wrote a lot of books. One of them was called The Book of Black Magic and Pacts. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. And he led a very young Aleister Crowley um, to write to him uh, to, like, vi- advice. Like, Crowley would be like, hey. Why, hey, dear uh, Ashley, wait, like, what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> Did you say, dear Ashley, yes. the <laughs> so through their associations with uh different societies and brotherhoods, the two um, <laughs> the two ended up having different mentalities or and different mindsets about how witchcraft and the occult and all that shit is this good. I love it because I'm like, it's the dumbest shit to fight about. But anyway, they became they, were fighting. they became enemies. <laughs> they decided to fight. I don't know. Um, basically, with Crowley attacking Waite's writing, like Aleister Crowley was like, "Fucking Arthur Edward Waite is a piece of shit, and his writing is stupid, and he doesn't know anything about the occult. I mean, he ain't never seen a ghost in his life. He, even, he wouldn't know a ghost if it came up and slapped him in the face. That man couldn't divinate a fart out of his butthole if it were loaded in the chamber. Like, he's like... He ain't worth shit. 
Um, so that created like this public feud in the community, of, of course. course. <laughs> of course. And both of them were determined to like be the expert, like be the person you go to for the occult. Like this person answers all the questions. This person like knows what is what, right? So I hope they got storefronts across the street from each other. <laughs> like Jimmy Pesto and Bob. Yeah, or like in arrested development when Job gets the other banana stand. So oh my gosh. <laughs> that was in my head recently because I was thinking about what it's a banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? Uh Lucille. 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 Anyway. So this was going on for like 20 years, okay? We've now gotten into the 20th century. We're in the 1900s. This is how long this bullshit and this, like, all these things have been happening, right? They went through their own Y2K they with did. this feud going on. They went through the Y2K. But it was Y1K at the time. It was just the first time around. I was going to I was, I can't remember what 100 is in Roman numerals. I was going to be, like, it's Y19 and then M I don't instead know. of Y2K. Anyway, so... <laughs> So in 1908, the British Museum acquired uh, black and white photographs of a full deck of tarot cards known as the Sola Busca deck, which was Italian. The deck, which dates back to around 1490, was extremely special. And Arthur Edward Waite uh, would have known that when he went to see the photographs on an exhibition like at the museum, he was like, this is like the deck. He's like, this is like my dream. And I got to figure out how, how are we going to make this? How are we going to steal the deck? English. How are we going to colonize this? <laughs> but to be fair, he's taking it from other white people. I mean, you know, just other Europeans. Is that appropriation or is it just acclimation? Uh, I don't know. It's just our culture. <laughs> uh, I hate that. It's not. <laughs> All right, so he's got to find a way to steal. So, so the he deck goes to see this deck, right? Tarot. And this is the first deck that also had. So we've talked about the the major arcana and the minor arcana, right? Mm -hmm. And they're together now in one deck. Mm -hmm. But the pip cards used to be like regular playing cards, right? Where it's just like a four of hearts, a yeah. four of diamonds, whatever. More general. What was different about the Sola Busca deck was that all of the pip cards were also illustrated. So like when you look at the tarot cards, right? There's like the four of wands. It's not just like the number four and four wands. There's like a guy who's, there's like four people and they're all holding wands or doing whatever. There's like four of the thing. There's a full illustration and that's what was so special about the Sola Busca deck was it was the first deck that all of the pip cards were oh. also illustrated so he was like we gotta fuck it this is so pretty <laughs> make this our a great own idea. Sola Busca deck so in this he noticed so the two of swords instead of it just being like two and a swords um there was a fully illustrated card for all of the pip cards everything had its whole had its own whole picture and he realized how valuable that was because what makes the tarot cards special with being like the pictures on them, as we talked about before, they can be read by people who can't read. Like they can tell the picture, the illustration. So if you don't know numerology and you don't know that four means this or whatever, you get the idea from this card that, okay, four of wands, it's good. I see like there's a little party happening here. There's a house. They're having a good time. So this anyone seems positive. 
So theoretically, anyone could read what the cards meant because they could look at the picture and a picture is worth a thousand words. You could get a lot of feeling and understanding from what that meant without knowing mm-hmm. what a four, what a wand was, without knowing what any of that meant. So the Solabuska deck is what would prove to be the inspiration to Pamela Coleman Smith, the artist that Waite chose to draw his deck. And in fact, several of the cards in both decks are almost identical in design. Oh. Pamela, like, almost totally gone. She just traced it. <laughs> she just traced it. <laughs> so who is Pamela Coleman Smith? So Pamela Coleman Smith, she was born in London uh, to an American father and a Jamaican mother. That's right. She was a woman of color, you bitches. That's who painted the tarot decks. She traveled between Jamaica, London, and New York as a child, and she eventually studied art at the Pratt Institute in New York under Arthur Weasley Doyle, though she didn't earn a degree. She set up shop as a commercial illustrator in London, and she did um, a bunch of different magazines. She worked with William Butler Yeats, Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually she illustrated Bram Stoker's last published work, which was not Dracula. It was The Lair of the White Worm in 1911. So uh, her art was colorful, it was unique, and in 1907, Alfred Stieglitz, the photographer and eventual husband of Georgia O'Keeffe, gave Smith her own show at his photo secession gallery in his first non-photographic exhibit. He was exhibiting her paintings. Hmm. This, like, British, Jamaican, spooky witch lady. Yeah, good for her. Right? <laughs> so, uh, like Waite, Smith's interests varied. She uh, was into all sorts of shit. She published her own books. She was a writer. She wrote a lot about Jamaican folklore. She, for a very little time, she had her own magazine called The Green Sheaf. Uh, and each issue bore the words, my sheaf is small but is green. <laughs> the all Green right. Sheaf. <laughs> all right. Okay. Smith was known in her own time for having the second sight. And she painted pictures based on visions that she saw. Uh, A lot of times it was stuff while listening to music. She would see visions and, like, paint what she saw while she was listening to music. And she, because of all of these amazing things, they were quick to get her into the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. They're like, look, we take women, people of color. Please come and join us. You're like a crazy, like, spirited witch lady. Like, we love it. So, um, together, working with... Arthur, Arthur Waite, they created the tarot deck. It was her paintings, even though it's primarily referred to as the Rider Waite deck, mm-hmm. um, it was painted by Pamela Coleman Smith. So it wasn't painted by Rider or Waite. The Rider Waite deck illustrated by Pamela, Pamela Coleman Smith. <laughs> Some people call it the Rider Waite Smith deck. I think I want to start telling myself to call it the Smith deck. And then when people ask what that is, be like, well, Commonly known. Traditionally as. known as the Rider Waite deck. <laughs> but Fun ultimately, it was, it was painted by Pamela Coleman Smith. Now, how did it become so popular? That's the part that's like, okay, we know where it came from. We know who painted it. The cards were first published in December of 1909 by the publisher William Ryder and Son. That's where Ryder comes from. And that was in London. The first printed was extremely limited, and it featured card backs with roses and lilies on the mm. pattern. A much larger printing was done in March of 1910, featuring better quality card stock and a cracked mud card back design. And the edition, often referred to as the A-Deck, was published in 1910 to 1920. Ryder continued publishing the deck in various editions until 1939. 
And then it kind of went away for a while. Hmm. And then again, from 1971 to 1977. So there was like a 20-year break, a 20, 25-year break. Mm -hmm. All of the rider editions up to 1939 were available with a small guide written by Arthur Waite, providing an overview of the traditions and the history of the cards. A lot of it was bullshit and they made it up yeah texts about interpretations and extensive descriptions of their symbols one thing that's important to remember with every tarot card deck you could say that like this card means the same thing in every deck but with every deck it's special because it's been interpreted by a different artist so it might not be like one you know ten of swords might look really like scary and miserable and somebody else's ten of swords might be like sweet and victorious and cool so with each different version of the tarot deck you're also getting a different person's interpretation i did not know that yes um now a lot of people will base their deck off of the rider weight deck but ultimately like you're everything is about perspective and what is the perspective of the person who created this what does this mean and then it's your perspective right because what does this symbol mean to you versus mm-hmm. what it means to another person who reads it so the toth deck has different cards some of them are even though it has the same major arcana and the same minor arcana their interpretations of some cards are different okay um so, like, the Rider White deck has the Strength card, and the Toth deck has the Lust card, little stuff like that. There's the Judgment card in the Rider Weight deck. It's Aeon in the Toth deck. What does that mean? Aeon, like, pass. Well, so on the Toth deck, I believe I don't have that deck. <laughs> but from listening to Michelle T talk about it, I believe it has, like, a baby on it, um, and it's, like, the passing of time. Right? Judgment. uh, So it's like the second to last card in the Major Arcana because the last card is the world. And in the Rider White deck, it is judgment. And the idea is that with judgment, it's like the... Here's how you could consider this the same or different. Judgment, I always take it as it's like the consequences of your actions bad or good like it's you it's you getting to seeing the outcome of what you've been working on Mm -hmm. so aeon is similar right it's like the passing of time something new coming and they're in the same place in the deck Mm -hmm. but it's different based on whose interpretation of what that card was supposed to be and then the artist's interpretation of what that guy told her it was supposed to be Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So it's like a it's like a mystical game of telephone. <laughs> um now the reason that the one that is popular now, the one that we see all the time, um, is the Rider White deck, is that ultimately in the United Kingdom, the copyright for the art deck expired 70 years to the end of the year in which Waite died. Um, so in countries with 50 years posthumous terms, the copyright expired in 1992. In the United States, though, the deck became part of public domain in 1966. Oh, wow. Because our copyright laws are when it was published plus 28 years, at, you can renew it, and then you can renew it a second time for 28 years, and then it's free. It's public domain. So in the United States... Even though there were copyright laws, you couldn't print it in other countries because it was still under copyright. In the U.S., it became public domain in 1966 and thus was available for use by the by American artists for numerous different media projects. So that's why it blew up. And specifically, 
a company called U.S. Game Systems has a copyright claim on their updated version of the deck, which they published in 1971. But this only applies to the new material added to the pre-existing work, which isn't the actual picture on the tarot cards or the artwork on the tarot cards. It's the artwork on the back of the tarot cards. (laughs) Because they couldn't technically copyright the images because they were public domain but they're like okay well we're the first ones that are printing it with this back and we've got a copyright on this back (laughs) but with that patent they very quickly put those cards everywhere and Mm -hmm. they were in like toy stores primarily is where they sold the most very early on but they were in toy stores they were in occult shops they were everywhere And because of that, not because of the original creation of the deck in the early 1900s, but because of that patent in 1971 or that copyright claim, U.S. Game Systems blew up the tarot market. (laughs) But as a game, they're a game company. Mm -hmm. They create like playing card decks and stuff like that. Um, It wasn't really as an occult tool. It was as a playing card deck. Yeah. But that's how they were able to massively expand it. And it got bought just about everywhere. And that's why that's the deck that people like you and me are most familiar with. Because that's the deck that was everywhere in the U.S. from the early 70s on. Interesting. So that is the history of the Rider Waite deck. Crazy. (laughs) And in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more um, about the actual cards themselves. And reading tarot, um, what the cards mean, uh, and different divination tools that you can use the tarot cards for whoa part two check it out next week next week not right now sarah what are you talking about this week well um i have a story about a woman who i don't think she's was a witch but i sure think she missed out on an opportunity because all the hands were in her favor after what happened to her so this is a story about a woman named ann green back in 1650 in oxfordshire UK. 1650. So Anne was born in like 1628 or something like that. Uh, But Anne is about 22 years old at this time, working as a scullery maid in the house of a Sir Thomas Reed, who was a justice of the peace. At the time, Reed's 17-year-old grandson I read a few accounts that said this, and for everything else I said, everything else I read, I stand by it. I believe that she was raped. Wikipedia, some other websites will say that she was seduced or that she was often solicited by fair promises and other amorous enticements and ultimately slept with the young man. But overall, to me, all of it sounds non-consensual. Okay. Right? Either way, six months later, she had an I-didn't-know-I-was-pregnant situation. When she gave birth in the bathroom to a stillborn baby. So she took it out and she buried it out on the grounds near a cesspit on the property. But the baby's body was found and someone, I guess, told on Anne. Either way, she was put on trial for infanticide by her boss, Sir Thomas Reed himself. He was the prosecutor. So she was prosecuted under this crazy law, which is the Concealment of Birth of Bastards Act of 1624. Oh, my gosh. 
in which there was legal presumption that a woman who concealed the death of her illegitimate child means that she had murdered it. Jesus Christ. Right? So they were like, Ugh, it's too, too relevant. Mm, Is this why you're doing this? No. But it's very relevant. But as I was researching, I was like, wow, yeah, that's relevant. Despite medical evidence and testimony that the child was stillborn, which meant that she didn't murder the child, Anne was found guilty. And she was sentenced to be hanged. Anne was hanged on December 14th, 1650. Now, at this time... Hangings weren't exactly the quick neck-snapping affair that was hoped with hanging someone. You hope that they drop their neck, snaps, it's quick, it's done, over. Many times, they would drop them, and the accused's neck wouldn't snap, and they would hang there alive for a long time before finally dying. Mm -hmm. So because of this, Anne requested... For her friends to help ensure a quicker death for her. Asking for them to beat on her chest and pull on her legs. I was going to say, was she like, can you just let them like come pull on me? So from a local paper who printed, they said she was turned off the ladder, hanging by the neck for the space of almost a half hour. Some of her friends in the meantime were thumping on her breast with like the butt end of a gun, just like slamming her in the chest. While others were hanging with all their weight on her legs, sometimes lifting her up and then pulling her back down again with a sudden jerk. See, and I imagine them two like hanging on and lifting their own feet off the ground. That is what they were doing, but then they would also lift up and jump. God, I hate it. The sheriff, fearing they would break the rope, forbade them from doing that any longer. He's like, no, 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 that's too much. You might snap the rope. Honestly, though, those are good friends. I don't know if I, I don't think I could hang on your legs to ensure that you strangled faster. I might have to blindfold you to do it. Is that better or worse? So you could do it to me if I had the bag over my head? And you were like, this is just some white bitch. (laughs) So you could do it? There's a bag over my head? I don't know. If it were, what is this, 15, 20? I mean, she did request it. She requested. If you you asked me to. I'd try. I'd, you I'd, wouldn't try I'd, to bust I'd, me I'd out try. of jail first. You'd be like, don't do that again. You're going to break the rope. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't see it visually because this is a podcast. But, but I did emotionally like I was jerking her up and down. Like I was trying to snap the rope. And I'm just hanging there like. <laughs> <laughs> right. just like and you're like, tuck your neck. Um. Anyway, after a little over half an hour, they were like, she's dead. Uh, Cut her down. And she was uh, cut down and her body was given to the University of Oxford Physicians, their medical school for dissection. Because they were just like, she's a scullery maid and we're done here. The following day when the doctors opened her coffin to begin the dissection, they were shocked to discover that she had a pulse and was slightly no! breathing. 
this poor woman. So the doctors got to work on reviving her. First things first, they poured hot cordial spirits into her throat and tickled her throat to make sure that she would swallow and start coughing. And then they began rubbing her limbs and just trying to bring warmth back into her body. This is the 1600s, right? And this woman, I would assume, is effectively in like what we would call a coma after having been hung and had her friends get... You would think. They continued to administer spirits. You would hope. So they began rubbing her arms and throwing liquor down her throat. They did bloodletting. They put her in a warmed bed with another woman who also laid there next to her and continued to rub her limbs. They slathered her in oils and had a, I quote this, heating odiferous clyster to be cast in her body to warm her bowels. They gave her a hot enema. Specifically, as I looked into it, it's known as a tobacco smoke enema. And it worked. What? After what? After 12 hours, she began to speak. And after four days, she was eating solid food. I hate it. And within a month, she was fully recovered. Are you fucking kidding me? She just had a little bit of amnesia around the timeline of her execution. I mean, one, I hope so. I wouldn't want her to remember that horrible experience. And two, was she still sentenced to death? And with the support of her doctors who had revived her, lobbied the court for a pardon, which she was granted. Oh, thank God. Half because the court said that it was the hand of God that came down and showed her to be innocent. And the prosecutor on her case, her boss, Sir Thomas Reed, he died three days after her hanging. Good. So there was no one. The charges were dismissed. The charges were dropped because he died. Case closed. Can you imagine? Case closed. Well, he died, so this case is gone. So we're done. And you obviously did not, despite both your friend Janet and Mark tugging on your legs. I got to tell you, well, then I'm just thankful it went that way and not the other way where they were like, well, clearly you're a witch. You're still alive. We're going to kill you again. So I don't know if she ever practiced witchcraft, but (laughs) she should have because she had something. Somebody needs to ask that woman if she wants to live deliciously because (laughs) she is. She's trying it. After her recovery and moved out of the city into the country with, I believe, friends. And she made sure to take the coffin with her. As a reminder, we don't know much else about the remainder of her life after this, but she did get married. She had three children We know that she died in 1665. Unfortunately, it's speculated that she did die during childbirth. Mm. Of all the things, man. Mm. Of all the things. But that's the crazy resurrection of Anne Green in 1650. 
Good for her. We don't know if she's a witch or not, but I'm I'm glad she had amnesia. She had more than one life. <laughs> About Can you imagine? Her execution. She's out having dinner with her friends afterward and being like, So I know I don't remember much, but I remember asking y'all to help me. Who did what? And they're like, I didn't. I couldn't do it. And she's like, JK, I remember everything. And I know you did. <laughs> I just imagined like a kill bill moment where like she see like she's out to dinner with friends. And she sees the guy who was like, stop tugging on the rope. Mm. Like, she sees that guy, and in her head's like, (laughs) and she, like, remembers him being like, leave that rope alone. Stop tugging it. You're going to snap that rope. And then she just, like, pulls her sword out. And she kills him. She kills him. Then she goes back, and she gets married and has three kids. Well, two, has a third, doesn't live to see it. But doesn't, yeah, doesn't make it past kid number three. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that story crazy? That's crazy, man. Isn't that insane? I de- the human body. I, d- I definitely did not see that like ending the way that it did. Right? That was crazy. That was wild. She was hung uh, for all in all accounts, died. That's some Rasputin shit right there, but and like then, way more intense. And then came back to live for because another 15 they, years. I love that's the part that's wild that they were like, well, clearly somebody wants you alive, girl. You, you pardon. You're let it go. You're good. Well, I mean, to be, here's my other thought. To be here, maybe specific, they sentenced her to be hung. She was hung. She served her time. She did her sentence. She did her sentence. Longer than many. What are they? They're going to give her another one? Some people die instantly. That girl was on there for 30 minutes. It's like when people get, you're going to be served two consecutive life sentences. So like if he's reincarnated, do do they need to go in there and serve that time? So somebody, I don't know if this is true because I haven't Googled it. (laughs) Somebody once told me that a life sentence is 70 years. And so when somebody gets, like, two life sentences, they're getting 140 years. Like, it's still, they're not going to outlive that. But theoretically, it's like, if you live to be 150, guess what, bitch? Walk your old ass out that door. I dare you. you. I dare you You to walk out of this prison 170 years old. But I don't know if that's true. But that's that's how you get multiple life sentences or whatever. It's not really like if you come back in, you know, the next life, we're going to put you back in here. But it's still an amount of time that, like, you'll be dead before that. Why don't you sign that billion-year contract for the Sea Org? But, uh, but Anne, Anne made it out. She lived to tell Good the tale. Good for her, man. That was, that was a wild ride. Yep, you're welcome. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? Well, that was a fascinating journey we've been on today. It was a lot. Tune in for part two about tarot, and I got some more um, fascinating stories next week, too. And we're going to talk more about journeys, because that's what the tarot is all about, as you'll find out next week. There you go. I want to thank you so much for listening. You can support our podcast in so many ways. We have a Patreon. We have an email, bitch. It's free. You can give us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free. That's free. We love all of those things. You can make another email, leave another five-star review. That's free. Or just use your other email because we all know you have more than one email. You know what? It's the holiday season, and all we want for the holiday season is, is a five-star review. Is a five-star review on iTunes. And maybe um, another few dollar patrons. You know? Fucking do it. That's it. I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. 
Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 